You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I work in the education department here at the AGO and we're absolutely delighted this evening to be partnering with Holocaust, the Newburger Holocaust Education Centre to present this programme tonight. So um, before we begin, I'd like to invite the Executive Director, Mira Goldfarb, to come and make a few comments and introduce Michaela Melian and Robert Van, Jan Van Pelt. Did I get it right? I've been practising. Thank you, Gillian, and my former colleague, Carrie Ryan, and uh, the Art Gallery of Ontario director, Matthew Teitelbaum, uh, and director of education, Kelly McKinley, the guy knew it was a Mick. Uh, thank you very much for uh, hosting us this evening and partnering with us on this very important program. It's generously co-sponsored by Annette Metz-Pivnik and Richard Pivnik and family in honor of George Metz, who survived the Holocaust, and in memory of his sister, Chesia, and other family members who perished. I also would like to thank Holocaust Education Week lead sponsors, and I'm doing so on behalf of our chair, Honey Sherman, uh, and Elizabeth and Tony Comper who, like the Pivniks, are proud supporters of both the AGO and Holocaust Education Week. So it's truly a pleasure to bring both uh, institutions and endeavors together tonight. We also thank the Goethe Institute, the German-Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and the good offices of the Consulate of the Federal Republic of Germany, as well as DAAD, the German Academic Exchange Service, for their outstanding contribution to this program and of Holocaust Education Week in general. We also thank Joseph Gottdenker for his sponsorship of Holocaust Education Week's Scholar-in-Residence, Professor Robert Jan van Pelt, who will lead tonight's program in conversation with Michaela. We thank CTV and the National Post for their media sponsorship of Holocaust Education Week, which enables us to bring these outstanding voices to the broadest possible audiences. And we invite you to join us at programs throughout the week and throughout the GTA. Tonight's program is a very special highlight of the 32nd annual Holocaust Education Week on the theme of culture of memory. We've taken a new direction this year by placing an emphasis on artistic and literary representations of the Holocaust spanning across generations and nationalities and also the richness and diversity of the culture in Europe that was lost, that was destroyed by the Shoah. So it's truly fitting that we're here at the AGO for this evening with Michaela, whose Memory Loops project is really an innovation in the concept of memorialization. It's site-specific, but it's also virtual, visual, audio, and conceptual. It really transcends the boundaries of time and space and identity. We chose this project with a thanks to Robert Jan for bringing it and Michaela 
to our awareness because it's really a fascinating example of how a new generation of artists are perpetuating the memory of the Holocaust, an event that they didn't necessarily experience or certainly experience themselves, but have inherited the memory of it and are compelled to address it in their work. It raises really interesting questions that I hope we'll get to this evening about what happens to memory when it moves beyond uh, a generation beyond testimony and into disciplines beyond history. Memorialization also has become a, a cultural trend at this moment, and we hope that the conversation will touch on that as well. So without further ado, a brief description of memory loops, and then I'll formally introduce the speakers. In 2008, Michaela Melian won the City of Munich's competition for a monument to the victims of National Socialism. Memory Loops is an audio artwork based on material from those victims, from which Melian has created a collage of voices and original music thematically linked to the topography of Munich. The website memoryloops.net forms the central element of the artwork, and the public can follow customizable individual memory loops throughout the city. Artist and musician Michaela Melian lives in Munich and Hamburg. She's professor of time-based media at the Hamburg Academy of Fine Arts and co-founder of the band FSK, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce in German myself, but I'll ask her to do so when she comes to the podium. The translation, however, is voluntary self-control. It's very intriguing, and I hope she'll tell us some more about it. In 2010, she received the Culture Prize of the City of Munich. She became known through the radio play Ferenwald, which means Pine Forest, and is about the forced labor camp of the same name, which is also a suburb of Munich. 2012 Holocaust Education Week scholar-in-residence Robert Jan van Pelt was born in Harlem in the Netherlands. He's currently a professor at the School of Architecture at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Van Pelt is acknowledged as a leading world expert on the former Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz-Birkenau and a highly sought-after lecturer. He's been highly sought-after this week, and I have to say this is, this is the crowning moment in a marathon series of lectures and panels, each more intriguing and dynamic than the next that he's done for us as part of Holocaust Education Week. In collaboration with Dr. Deborah Dwork, he authored Auschwitz, 1270 to the Present, published in 1996, which received a National Jewish Book Award in 1996 and the Spiro Kostoff Award in 1997. And in 2003, the duo published the acclaimed Holocaust, A History. An expert witness for Deborah Lipstadt's defense team in the civil suit brought by British Holocaust denier David Irving, Van Pelt published The Case for Auschwitz, Evidence from the Irving Trial in 2002, his most recent work was annotation of David Coker's diary, At the Edge of the Abyss, a concentration camp diary, 1943 to 1944, that was published this year in 2012. Among his many academic honors, Van Pelt was named Outstanding Professor in 2005 by the University of Waterloo for his excellence in teaching and scholarly pursuits, and I would add to that, in public programs. So. I welcome Professor Van Pelt and Michaela Melian to 
the podium to begin this conversation and viewing. Thank you so much. Okay, um, I feel we're here amongst friends, so we can be quite relaxed about this evening. Uh, the rules of the game is we all know that something else is happening south of the border. We try not to focus on it. However, there's one exception. If any of you gets an SMS that Fox News has called the election for Obama, you can just stop the proceeding and call it out, and we will celebrate. So, where to begin? Um, Michaela, can, can we get the other picture? Okay, we can do so, it. So, <laughs> we actually start with a picture because, because I discovered this, this website because I stumbled over it. And I stumbled over it because I'm interested in this picture. This picture, I think that probably most of you have seen it one time or another in a Holocaust history or in the history of National Socialist Germany or the Second World War. It's a very famous picture that was first published in the Washington Times on the 23rd of March, 1933. And uh, it, the picture um, had been uh, taken 13 days earlier, on the 10th of March, in Munich. And uh, it was actually in the Prillmeierstraße, which is right in front of the Court of Justice in Munich. And the caption that came with the picture was how Hitlerites treat Jews. And uh, it, it is a very famous picture because in some way it is the very first picture that shows, you could say, a violation of, of human dignity uh, in the Nazi regime. Uh, a man who has walked through the city in his underwear or in his long johns uh, with, a, uh, with, a, with a big sign and uh, which has actually been retouched here, which says, Ich werde mich nie mehr vor der Polizei beschweren. I will never again uh, complain to the police. But it was retouched also by other newspapers in a different way. And according to an Argentinian uh, newspaper, it was retouched. Ich bin Jude, aber ich, soll, ich will mich nicht über die Nazis beschweren. I'm a Jew, but I don't want to complain about the Nazis. The problem with this picture was, which was taken on the 10th of March by an unemployed photographer, Heinrich Sander, which, of course, no Munich or German newspaper had wanted to buy from him. He had given it to Hearst to basically uh, try to sell it abroad, but uh, the, 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 the text on the sign was illegible. The man who is walking here is a, is a man named Michael Siegler. He is a, he's a lawyer. He was a German lawyer, a German-Jewish lawyer. Uh, he was the partner, uh, the senior partner in a very well-known law firm, the Siegler Law Firm. And the day before, on the 9th of March, <coughs> Himmler had become chief of police in Munich uh, as a result of the changes that were taking place this time. And uh, basically, that day, uh, they had gone out to arrest some prominent Jews. And one of them was a man named Max Ulfelder, who was the owner of a very large department store. Uh, Ziegler was the lawyer of Ulfelder, and he went to the police uh, headquarters at the Edstrasse in Munich. 
uh, to basically try to get his client released. Instead, what happened was that Ziegler was beaten up. He, uh, they cut open his suit, and he was led through Munich with this big sign by SA man, visible to the whole city. Two photos were made of it, and you see one of them. So, as I, as I got interested in this, in this image, I started, uh, and I was researching the history of it, and then I heard about Michaela Millian's new whole, uh, uh, memorial of the victims of Nazi terror. And as I uh, visited it on my computer at home, I discovered that, in fact, uh, you could uh, find your way through Munich and that it related in some way places and incidents. And, of course, I was very interested in the location of the Edstrasse. And so I found my way to the Edstrasse, as I think we will find right now. Edstrasse is police headquarters uh, in Munich. I don't know if you said that. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> So let's hear that. In January 1933, Hitler came to power. On March 10th, 33, my father went to police headquarters where he was beaten up. His teeth were knocked out, his eardrums damaged. He was beaten bloody, his trouser legs were cut off, and, barefoot, he was led around central Munich with a placard round his neck with the inscription, I am a Jew, and I shall never again complain to the police. I was in bed that day with a bit of a cold. My mother was out shopping and I heard the front door open and shut and expected her to come to my room to ask me if I was all right. No one came. Normally my father would unlock the door, come in, whistle, and my brother and I would run down the corridor to greet him, each of us trying to get there first. That was lunchtime, but now it wasn't lunchtime yet. I got out of bed and went out into the corridor. There, on hooks outside the bathroom, hung my father's blood-drenched clothes. It was the first time that I was really scared. Children are sometimes afraid of the dark or of imaginary ghosts or whatever, but this was a real fear, not anything that I imagined. I tiptoed along the corridor to my parents' bedroom where, for the first time in my life, I knocked at the door and opened it gingerly. I saw my father pull up the eider down to cover his face up to his eyes so I shouldn't see his injuries. And he said, wait till your mother comes home. And that was weird. He would always refer to her as Mutti, mom. After that, they tried to protect me from knowing more. It was some years later that I got the whole story. But then it didn't seem right for my aunt to show me the now famous picture years later and I wished it had been my parents who had shown it to me. I think parents should not keep the truth from their children. They have a vivid imagination. What they imagine is more harmful to them than the truth itself. 
Later, I discovered what had happened. Ulfelder, the owner of the big Ulfelder store, had been arrested. My father, his lawyer, had gone to police headquarters in Edstrasse to lay a complaint. When he got to police headquarters, someone said, Dr. Siegel, you're wanted in room number so-and-so. And that's where these SA chaps beat him up, cut off his trouser legs and barefoot with a placard round his neck that said, I am a Jew and I shall never again complain to the police. They led him round Munich. When they got to the main station, they got tired of it all and let him go. When he was about to get into a taxi there, a man came up, and this my father told me himself, a man with an English or an American accent who said, I've just taken a photo of you, may I publish it? My father told him he could do what he liked with it, and got into the taxi. Years later, my brother told me that the whole event scared him and he thought he'd be the next one to get beaten up. My own reaction to my father being beaten up, that of an eight-year-old, was fury. It amazes me now in hindsight how furious an eight-year-old can get. I wanted revenge. How I would suspend each of these men from the window so they, who had heard my dad, would be scared of falling down. I wanted to frighten them. It was years later when I was 41 years old that I talked to my father about this at length. His view was that National Socialism was a historical error, a political deviation. He felt that the Germans had now found their way back again. That approach appealed to me and I share it. The fury has gone. My father at the time was defiant rather than humiliated. Many years after this event, when he visited us in London, my mother had died a year or so before. My middle son, Paul, announced at dinner, You know something, Grandpa? Your picture is in our history book. My father said, Let's have a look at it. So Paul went upstairs to get it while we, my husband, the other two sons and I sat there rather anxious as to how my father would react. He looked at it and said, yes, very interesting. We laughed relieved. Then Michael, my husband, a historian, said, I've always wanted to ask you this. What went on in your head at that moment? My father answered, I can answer that. From the moment they started laying into me, I had only one thought in my head. I shall survive you all. That is defiance, not humiliation. He lived to be 96. So um, welcome tonight here in the Toronto. Thank you. Uh, you know, if we if we had been purists, uh, we could have uh, beamed you in from Munich. But um, so so I think the, probably the first question uh, is is how did you how did you come to do this work? Uh, what is your background? Um, what inspired you to uh, to create uh, an internet memorial? 
Yeah, actually, uh, this is really in my work is, is, is uh, something special because normally as a visual artist or musician, like I work, you work uh, on your own terms and you develop your own projects and work with institutions together or for public places. But in this case, it was a competition I was invited for. And so it's really something different. And as soon as you start uh, to, to get uh, involved in this kind of competitions, you also have to think about what is a memorial, what is it standing for, and what it, does it mean today to do that, and especially in Germany. So it's really um, a challenge uh, for every artist, I would say, and we all know all these uh, memorials we have in our cities, and uh, they're normally out of bronze or of stone, and... Uh, they have uh, a certain uh, meaning and uh, some political meaning when they were built. And often when they are, they are standing there for 200 years or more, um, so like in Soviet Union, there were just now the, 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 all these statues we have from Stalin or Lenin, they just uh, were tore down. And, but all these artists who did it, uh, they were kind of done it for the polit politicians. So... Um, and so in that case, it was something different because the city of Munich decided that they wanted to have a different kind of memorial for new forms of remembrance and they didn't have a place for it. So, so let's just go back, track back for a moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we talk about Munich and mm -hmm. National Socialism, uh, this is not, it's not like talking about Essen and National Socialism or Dusseldorf and National Socialism. Munich has a very special relationship with this phenomenon. Maybe you can just dwell on that for a moment. Yeah. You know, like everybody of you might know, Munich is the city of the movement, the beginning of the movement. And, uh, but it's more complicated than just this word means. Uh, Hitler started here, but uh, the reason that Hitler could start there was that Munich was a city with the only revolution in Germany. So we had a revolution in Munich for like four weeks or a little bit more or less. It's not so hard, it's hard to decide. And uh, when the king was just thrown out in 1919, we had this uh, Republic. how would you translate that? A Republic of Councils. Yeah, and it was mainly, the mainly political leaders were from uh, Jewish uh, families or and we, a lot of like artists were also running this uh, revolution. And uh, one and after this revolution failed, there was a really backlash in the population in Bavaria against a Jewish population. It was really easy to, for getting up this kind of uh, brown movement. So, so, so we are basically you 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 you're creating a memorial for the city that is the capital of national socialism. Yeah, official recognized by Hitler. This is the capital of national socialism and. Were of any the capital of the movement. Of the it's movement, okay, yeah. but okay. So, the capital okay. then was Berlin. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> it is the capital of the idea of the mm -hmm. of the party. And, mm -hmm. and so, so, was there any memorial already? When uh, had, did the city ever memorialize national socialism after the war, or or did it just try to ignore it? So the city is covered with a lot of memorials, like you had. Uh, you might know the uh, uh, white rose. Uh, 
comes from Munich, and there's a, a beautiful memorial in the university where they put their leaflets, and uh, many houses and many Jewish institutions have plaques on the outside. And But there's only one... Uh, uh, Memorial, which is really the memorial, and the place where it's standing, it's called Place of the Victims of National, National Socialism, and it's in the town heart, but it's not a place, not a single house has this address, so it's a, an island uh, surrounded by traffic, and the traffic roads have mostly four tracks or something, so it's really loud, and it's hard to enter that island and to get to this Memorial, and then we have also to talk about the memorial and how it looks like. Yeah, how does it look? Tell, tell us how it looks. <laughs> it's a bronze column, uh, quite high, and there's an inscription uh, to the victims of National Socialism. And on the top of the of the column, there is a flame, an eternal flame, uh, who's burning, um, and the flame is um, coming out of gas for sure. And so I think. Uh, like I just briefly um, described it, I've, and there are a lot of people like me in the city who are totally uncontent with this kind of appearance of a of a memorial, uh, either to use the the gas for it, and, and also the the, fir, uh, the the image of an eternal flame. That is also kind of an image you know from the eternal government of the Third Reich, and all these things. So this. Uh, memorial was built in, I think, in the 70s, and I don't want to blame the artist for it because he won another competition. <laughs> uh, but I would blame maybe the jury for it, uh, not to be able to read uh, messages who we get through kind of uh, 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 yeah, architecture or sculptures, because they also tell us something. We, we, we uh, with our unconsciousness, yeah. we we would do the relation to other things like that we have seen. Yeah. So, so I mean, as an architectural historian, I must say that it's the most Nazi memorial. I mean, it looks Adolf Hitler would could have designed it. Mm. It's 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 a remarkable kind of phallic little thing with the flame on it. And in the 1930s, Munich was full of these things built by the Nazis. So, so there you are. You you basically are invited for this competition. You are an artist, yeah, and uh, uh, you've worked in uh, with various media. And then they tell you that there is no site. You ask them what is the site, and and, and the city says there is no site for this memorial. It, was it because the city was kind of passive aggressive? They didn't really want this new memorial. How did you? How did you interpret the fact there is no site for the memorial, and how did you respond to that? So in, in the beginning, like all invited artists, 16 in, artists were invited, were like totally upset that there was not a site dedicated to this new memorial, because um, like a lot of uh, political people and artists and, and journalists were all uncontent with this place, and so this competition came out of this uh, idea that they had have to be a new memorial, but at the, at the end they didn't have a place. And so I just would say um, that Munich is uh, in difference to Berlin, like everybody of you might know the Eisenman uh, memorial there. Um, 
It's different because uh, through uh, when the both parts of the city came together, you have a lot of spots in the inner city uh, you could use for terms like that. And still, I think it's the most important gesture behind this memorial that it's this kind of ground is so expensive and so um, uh, it's so such a political gesture just to give this ground next to the to the uh, Brandenburger Tor to this idea. Uh, that it really means more than what you built there. Uh, not to blame now Eisenman, but I think it's really something in our economic world today, it's really the most important fact that in the heart of the city there's something given to it. And Munich wasn't able to do that on one hand side, I would suggest, because the city is... Uh, like like all these old cities, it's very narrow in the middle, you don't have free, empty spaces, and the only space they could have taken was this place which already exists. But they didn't want to destroy that one, I think. And uh, on the other hand, uh, they, they couldn't uh, decide, uh, because that would have been uh, one of the Philly uh, places in the inner city to take for it because it has a meaning which place you mean take for it and it could just be the Königsplatz where all the Nazi propaganda things had happened and on the other hand it could be the Odeonsplatz where all the uh, all the, the other things happened so these places and these places are owned by the Bavarian state and not by the city and this is another funny thing that you have a city and you don't have access to every uh, part in the city because it's owned by the country and so they couldn't give it. I so, think. so how did you, how did you, how did you come to then decide to turn the fact that there is no place to your advantage and decide this will be a memorial without a place? So it, actually in fact I first thought this competition is kind of like a test balloon that they invite uh, different artists and mainly the artists were all of them quite well known for uh, their political um, um, uh, interest in her work so in, in their work for example also Hans Hake was invited so um, it's kind of a challenge for Munich, uh, by the way, to get a Hans Hake memorial. So you can see, uh, on the other hand, we thought, okay, all of us, maybe it's just a test balloon. They just try what they will get. And that the, on the other hand, then the politicians say, oh, we don't want to have something like that. We have to uh, invent something new. I don't know. And um, I just thought, okay, if you don't have a place, I give you a memorial which doesn't need a place. And if you think about public places in our days, we have real public places, but there's also the internet. And I think it's if we take it as a public place, it's uh, m even more visited as the real public places. If we take in comparison, we have somewhere a memorial in the outside, and so once a year in Germany it's uh, the... Uh, 9th of uh, November or other days they just uh, politicians and um, other groups are um, coming together there and some speeches and flowers were put and then it's a it's just uh, a stone again and so in this case uh, I thought it's an idea to have the whole city as a place for the memorial not to define one symbol political place because all these stories and who are now kind of in a basket there, 
happened nearly in every corner in that city. So, so, so can I so can I just interrupt you there? Mm. You you throw suddenly stories in. We haven't word, heard the word stories yet. So yeah, okay. uh, you know, normally when we when when we deal with monuments, we deal with stuff in space. We don't deal with stories. So so let's just go back one step. Uh, you decided that there was going to be a kind of virtual Munich and it was going to be about stories. Tell me why stories? What, 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 why were these stories so important to you? And how did you, I mean, where did you have your stories? I mean, did you have a big bag of stories somewhere? Uh, uh, no, no. Um, yeah, so I just have to tell that the city wanted uh, us artists that uh, there were some uh, rules we had to uh, follow if we apply for that uh, competition. And one was that um, we should think about to address a new generation who um, maybe is not longer aware to meet eyewitnesses and also to think about a new form to keep this, uh, what eyewitnesses are standing for in this kind of post-war, especially Germany, who, are the, the, who, who give the testimony to the other generations. And um, so I thought, if it would be a stone, what can he do in that way? And also it should be a memorial not only for Jewish victims, it should be for all the victims, like it's written here, uh, um, to all victims of the National Socialism terror in Munich. And so it's it's really, why, how can you address this without using the, uh, the stories of the people? And so since I'm a musician and uh, worked a lot also with audio, um, and uh, I'm also very interested in how language constructs a kind of memory or constructs uh, our social. It's so much influenced by uh, language terms. Um, I thought, why not go to all these archives in Munich and Bavaria and look for um, interviews of uh, victims or other people? And also one a rule for us artists was that we should not only look for the victims, we also should look for the bystanders and the perpetrators. So it's kind of kind, kind of difficult, I would say. But but um, before we go, we will come mm -hmm. back to the stories. You also, <coughs> at at times, uh, include decided to include documents. Mm -hmm. You know, documents which were which were which were created by officials and so on, and. Um, I think that you were interested to uh, basically play one of your recordings there of a very, very early document, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, which comes, I think, from 1922, and which is a, uh, an invitation to attend a Nazi rally in a beer hall. And I wonder if we can listen to that, and that you then uh, can, uh, that we deal with the, with the documents and then go back to the testimonies after that. Mm -hmm. Okay. How many documents did you uh, did you put up around? Let's listen first. Okay. What is that? So we knock her back. Yeah, but it doesn't play. NSDAP notice for rallies on December thirteenth, nineteen twenty-two. National Socialists, Germans, anti-Semites. Attend our 10 protest rallies at 8.30 p.m. today, December 13, 1922, at the following venues. Bürgerbräukeller, Rosenheimer Straße, Salvatorkeller, Nockerberg, 
Hofbrauhauskeller, äußere Wiener Straße, Franziskanerkeller, Hochstraße, Hofbrauhaus, Festsaal, Platzel, Löwenbräukeller, Stiegelmeierplatz, Großer Wirt, Schwabing, Hackerkeller, Theresienhöhe, Hirschbräukeller, Zollstraße neben Schorbräu, zur Blüte, Blütenstraße 18. Topic Jewish International Marxism and Freemasonry as Germany's Grave Diggers, the Entente, its Beneficiary. Our Führer, Party Comrade Hitler, will speak briefly at each venue. Jews not admitted. Admission charge to cover Holocausts, five Reichsmarks. War invalids, free. So uh, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of uh, <laughs> events that uh, are announced. Uh, one of the things, of course, which immediately uh, strikes you as a listener is that we have this child, this girl, this cheerful girl. Uh, It's a boy uh, with excellent with excellent <laughs> English, by the way. Is actually reading this 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 nasty document that is obviously drafted by some uh, some impossible middle-aged male. So can you just tell tell me a little bit about your decision to? And I think that all the documents which are written by Nazi officials are read by cheerful girls. Can you talk about it? Boys and girls. Oh, boys and girls, okay. <laughs> so, in fact, I had uh, 12 children speakers for this project. And uh, for the whole project, uh, we have to say in that term that uh, no original voice is or original source is uh, I, I used. I just, everything is new. Um, um, talked, uh, or how do you say, recorded by by young actors or children. And the children I decided to have for this document, I think to, they are quite important to, like if you would use it in a history book for il illustration, if you would have the black and white uh, picture like you brought now in the Michael Siegel picture, I would never show when I talk on my own on the project because I want to open up a, just the audio space for imagination at the end everybody would maybe remember that picture from his school book and uh, the children um, uh, even if I talked with them and, and the parents what they should read and they had the most horrible text to read this kind of uh, barbaric German um, office language and uh, they They understood quite well, but as soon as the microphone went on, they were kind of like this guy, very excited to do the job. And so I think that brings something very actual in this uh, language, because um, at that time also children read it like that in the school books and they learned it at school. And so it, it brings something alive and it takes away this kind of what we often have if we memorize that you that you have to be touched is taken uh, is is in the kind of instination i don't know how to say it right but in that uh, term it was really important to have it more as an abstract to make it uh, clear that these posters on, on the other hand with some other words um, it means something uh, it makes it so normal if children speak it Yeah, there's, there's, there's absolutely no sense of embarrassment <laughs> when, when the child, uh, of course, uh, when, when the child speaks it. And um, which actually I must say that one of the things when I, you know, I've lived uh, also a long time now with this memorial and I've shown it to my students also. And, and you know, one of the amazing things is the incredible presence 
it has. I mean, what I really like is, I mean, it's meant to be like this. This is not a picture of a memorial. This is the memorial, and as, as we listen to it. Um, now, before we continue, I just would like, uh, we heard the music on the background already in the, in, in, in the, in, in the first uh, track we played, uh, which is by the daughter uh, of, of Siegel, Michael Siegel B. Can you t tell a little bit about the way you, uh, as a musician, uh, approach this whole project? Yeah, that was very difficult because, uh, as you might know, in, in, in Germany, if you uh, get something on TV or in, in cinema, and uh, which is related to the Holocaust or to the Shoah, it's mainly it's modern music. So you have kind of Penderecki and 12-tone uh, music coming with, with it. Uh, and so it's uh, often it's really... Um, related uh, to a certain kind of music you listen to it and so i tried to to bring and also i'm not jewish i have to say and uh, i think um, it doesn't have to be klezmer because this is also a very new thing in germany if you make a holocaust uh, reading oft, often klezmer music comes with it but as I learned, uh, all the people I met interviewing for that project, and I have to tell, I met a lot of also uh, people from the Jewish community, uh, they are not uh, mostly close to klezmer music. Most of them were like classical trained, totally close to German music, or they had kind of a jazz uh, um, laugh. And so in that case, I looked, uh, all the music you listen to, um, I produced for the project, and uh, uh, because I'm also doing music on my own, not only with this band who was mentioned before, um, I'm also producing music under my name. So if you go to some sites on the internet, you might find some records of mine. And it's uh, kind of electronic music, or electronic produced music. And in that case, I used like five samples. Uh, samples are short bits of music who exist already. And uh, these samples come from compositions from people who are related to historical to this story. So I use, for example, a, a very tiny piece of uh, Mendelssohn Bartholdi, of a part, uh, piano piece, and also from Kurt Weil, from Coco Schumann, who is a jazz musician, a Jewish, and uh, also from Karl Amadeus Hartmann, who is a modern composer who did have... Um, the, uh, was forbidden to compose anymore in the Third Reich. And so, of all these four guys, I took a little bit of a piano piece. And why piano? Because piano is this kind of instrument in German education, uh, like everybody who wants to uh, do a cultural achievement learns piano at home. And also, it's, it's the instrument uh, which the girls had at home when they, like uh, in the education in the 19th century or beginning of the 20th century, when women not were allowed to go to university, uh, even also Jewish girls, they all were trained in piano. So piano is that kind of, makes this kind of uh, bourgeois, um, uh, yeah, living at home. So it was important for this kind of feeling of all these people in the city that they felt 
uh, it's kind of cozy here. Why should we leave? Okay, we have a bad government and uh, are wild and shout around. And this you will learn in many tracks you hear, where children ask the parents, why didn't we leave earlier? Why didn't they, like in 22, you could hear it, what they did. But why didn't we go? And uh, so this was very interesting for me as well because I was born in Munich and I, I know uh, and I know a lot about the history of the city, but still I learned a lot from uh, all these Jewish people who are still living there. So, for example, that if you go in that beer garden, we just heard one of these tracks where the, the um, rallies were from the Nazis. The beer garden is a tra traditional place where you can go and get the beer from the brewery directly. But you can bring your own uh, meal. You don't have to buy something. So it was kind of an open space also for Orthodox people, for uh, people who are otherwise not cut, could go to restaurants because they are um, related to a certain uh, community or they are too expensive. So it's just through all classes and you just hang out on Sunday afternoon. Kids are playing there and you get the beer and everybody told me beer is kosher anyway. So uh, I like that idea a lot and uh, also the Jewish people from Munich liked it and then they thought okay, they shout around and we stay here because we have good positions and many of the Jewish people in Munich were uh, very uh, highly assimilated. So let's go back to you. So we're we're, we're you're, you're now <laughs> making the, the, the memorial. Let, yeah. uh, let's go back. Yeah. I will. I you see. I will try to to regain control sometimes, so that you will just start talking again. Yeah, there are uh, so many stories coming with that. So yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit of dueling banyos right now uh, between the two of us. I think we both like to talk. But okay. Um, let's let's go back. You're making so you have conceived of this memorial in, in which you redraw by hand the city map of Munich. Why did you do that? Why didn't you use an existing map? Yeah, that's very easy because if you go in, in the internet and you look something up, it's mostly Google Maps and I didn't want to go with one of these big companies and this kind of aesthetics and also I didn't want to use like, uh, uh, because there's also an app um, available for your mobile phone and I didn't want to go with these big companies. Uh, it should be different and uh, so this was a, I did it for like two months every night I went in my studio and uh, the card I have drawn of the city, it's, I don't know, four meters by six meters or something and it's a pencil on white paper and then we made scans of it and then it was brought into the, to the programmers and then we we decided how should this player look like and all these things were totally precisely we thought how could that look like that it's, it also works for people who don't go often in the internet that it's kind of easy to, to handle but on the other hand that it's also for young people who are totally familiar with the net that it's still attractive and this was the idea and the black and white that we turned it round the colors because originally I did the drawing uh, with black on white. It's the idea that it has a little bit like a blackboard with the chalk on it that you can wipe it out like uh, every memory can be just wiped out because uh, memorizing is also important to see in the context of 
to forget, you know. Now, you, you've done this mm -hmm. very clearly. Uh, when you talk about this, you say, I did this as an artist. You're not a historian. You're not a memory expert. You're not an... Holocaust educator or in national socialism educator, you stand here in relationship to this material as an artist. And I, and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the idea of this as a work of art, primarily as a work of art. Yeah, that's, I think it's very important because um, this is not a memorial, uh, like an educational site which uh, tells you something what you have to know afterwards and how do you have to quote this and what do you have to remember and it's just like uh, I think every piece of art I like uh, to deal with if I look of an, an, on an old painting uh, I like it how it looks like but on the other hand I, if I'm interested I can learn a lot from a Raphael painting what the time when he painted it was about and what is dealt with in the image. Even if it's a religious image, it mostly tells something more about uh, symbols and uh, how the, the, the dresses are and the colors and everything has often a double meaning. So I thought um, that's also like all my work of art is that it always has kind of these multi-layers multi, um, that it tells more. And in that kind of work, I thought it has to be kind of a cloud of these all these voices. And it's just a selection I did, but it could be much more, but then it wouldn't work anymore. But in that case, uh, memor to memorize this uh, this history, it has to be active. It's not uh, that somebody should tell you sh sh you should do that. If it's worse, you just decide you want to do it. And um, I could just offer that. And uh, if it would be an educational uh, project, if you go on these uh, little circles, it would tell you, oh, this is about deportation, or this is about uh, the gypsies, and something like that. But I didn't want to do that. So you have to go in it, and either you look, okay, I have been to the Oktoberfest, uh, what is around that place? And then you can find out, and it's all different stories. And, uh, and I think I... I just um, offer the people the way they want to approach the history or, or this yeah. piece so, of so art. So you didn't create an index, for example, no. that makes no, no. it possible for you to you know, get like with the Shoah Foundation interviews where you basically can say, I want to know everything that happened to Jews butchers uh, uh, when, uh, when kosher butchering was forbidden. So, so we can't, you have to stumble on this. Yeah. yeah, and also I think it's the most expensive thing I could, uh, people could give to this uh, memorial their time because they have to spend time with it if they want because memory is all about if you want or not. So you can't now, talking about mm. that, uh, we are, the Holocaust Education Week in Toronto mm -hmm. is, is centered around uh, Pogrom Night, Gestalnacht, the November Pogrom. And I think that there are a number of sites here uh, uh, which, which record stories about it. And, and I especially like the one on Max Josefplatz, which is the site where the opera is. And I think uh, maybe it would be nice to listen to that story and that we then maybe reflect on it a little bit of, of what the implications of that story are. 
Yeah, I could do that. I, I just forgot to an answer your question about the music. Maybe I should bring it to an end first, <laughs> very quick, because I took these small samples of these piano pieces and then I looped them, it's the same word, make a loop, and then you have a kind of a track of this structure as a rhythm structure and a melodic structure. And then all the music which comes with this piano, I did myself so as a musician. So there are many tracks and so I had like five pieces of music and there were kind of different uh, composed so the, all the adults who are speaking are in this kind of musical landscape but uh, the children are dry like we say in musicians language because the children should be like black and white image is coming. So we go now to a dry a dry site, yes? The uh, opera will be a dry site? No, no, it's a person, it? a person a telling the story, oh. so it's not dry. Okay, okay, okay. The, 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 but the children a, are dry. It's a, yeah, okay, the they children. don't get a musical bed. So you know the opera in the center of Munich, uh, right next to the royal former royal palace. Yeah, but I have to say, like many of the tracks like this now, it's 99, Uh, it li lays on two places in the city because it combines in the narration two places in the city. And that comes back to this word of loops, that it uh, all these stories have uh, often two places where they lay, and so they make kind of direction between the cities. And also you have like, uh, when we heard the first woman speaking, we have like her story in different tracks all over the city. So you can also do a loop through the city with her. But in that okay, case, let's, we go let's to make the a beginning at, at, at We go at to Max opera. Joseph, yeah. yeah, okay. In my second year at elementary school, a man came from the opera to audition the children. I and my three-year-older brother were picked out for the State Opera Children's Chorus. It was a load of fun, of course. We sang in all the operas where children were needed, and there were plenty of rehearsals. Finally, all of the choruses, children, women, men, came together for the full performances. If I hadn't had to sing in the opera chorus on the evening of November 9th, 1938, I would never have been out on the street at that time, of course. That evening, we were still on stage for the last act. As always, we had to change and remove makeup backstage after the performance. So it was pretty late by the time my brother and I set off for home. We went down Maximilianstraße, past the Vier Jahreszeiten Hotel, and saw there was a fire in the side street. The synagogue and Jewish school were in Herzog Rudolfstraße, and they were burning. There were people standing around, some in uniform. Things were being thrown out of a window. There was no sign of firefighters. At first we were curious and stood watching. We had no idea what was going on. Then my brother grabbed me and said, Let's get out of here quick and go home. It was pretty late for two children and we headed home through Lehel. We saw people smashing windows and ransacking shops. There were no police in sight. I didn't know what was happening.
I just pointed out, you see now the player, there's the place where the opera house is, and if you just go down the street here, where all these uh, blue, uh, where the other, where the cursor is now, there was used to be the synagogue and, uh, and the Jewish school. So it's just like 10 minutes walk. Today it's just next to the Hotel Four Seasons, very uh, famous hotel in Munich. So, so let's, let's just reflect for a moment on this little this little anecdote, this story. Uh, there's a young boy. The young boy sings in the children's choir of the opera. And the opera, the, the, the Knights of the Ninth, Night of the Ninth, the opera is performing. Uh, were there more places of entertainment at night that, that were open? Yeah, this, this track was really uh, something what uh, was and kind of an initial moment um, for the whole project for me when I did this interview with this man and he told me his story and uh, that he was singing in the theater and the 9th November was this kind of holiday, uh, school were free and, and all the theaters had uh, performances and this is the pogrom night, you might know. And so... Um, uh, we had we looked for testimonies and mainly we found just Jewish voices and only very very few bystanders and also the police uh, the fire police and so that was everything and and I couldn't believe it because when this boy went from the opera home and it was a holiday and the opera I don't know how many seats it has 800 600 and opposite of the Herzog Rudolfstraße, where you see now, is the Münchner Kammerspiele, the big uh, theater. And there may be 300 people, and there, uh, around the corner is the Hofbrauhaus and many uh, dance clubs and a lot of more theaters. So, and cinemas, uh, it's the town center. So uh, I sent one student, a historian student, to the archive, and we made a file in its five minutes only uh, the theater and cinema program of that night and the dance events in the inner city where the synagogues were and, and uh, mainly the department stores were with smashed windows. So basically what you have is that the, that the program takes place not only, uh, you know, that it, that it happens in the entertainment district amongst other places, it happens everywhere, but that actually the entertainment district is full of people enjoying themselves, yeah? and that they, these people are witness, like this boy, who's one of the very few willing to talk about actually what's happening. Um, so, so if we, how did you actually find people to talk to? I mean, where did, did you put an ad out? Uh, we, we put an ad out because we wanted to find bystanders and uh, Perpetrators, we, they don't uh, <laughs> uh, talk by themselves, so we have had to go to archives and radio shows to find them. And um, but they, they didn't um, talk many, and it was only through private connections. And so uh, most of the interviews I made uh, was through people who told me, other artists, friends, and so on. You have to talk to this person and that and that. Um, and I did 12 interviews by myself. Uh, two uh, of them are these um, female voice we heard 
first, that is the daughter of this lawyer, and that was kind of really also hard for that project, and also her brother, both kids survived uh, going with the children transport to London, and I uh, managed to meet them both. Uh, the brother died uh, one year ago, unfortunately, he was now 93, and uh, the girl or the woman is still living, she's 89. And uh, it was an incredible experience for me because both of them were totally fluent in German, uh, even in Bavarian, and uh, totally precise what they knew, and it was such an incredible experience to meet these people. So let's, let's go back. So the boy <laughs> in the choir, yeah? We have the boy in the choir, and we have B. Mm -hmm. And I think, that weren't they in the same school? Yeah, this girl we heard in the, the, in the, the first uh, statement, she talked about Gebele Schule, and Gebele uh, Schule was in, in Bogenhausen, that's a very expensive district in Munich, where, which was kind of the district where the wealthy Jews lived, and they both went to the same uh, school. And so this was kind so of... So the boy reflects then later, and I, I wonder, I don't really know where the tracks anymore, but the boy at a certain moment reflects uh, it today about the... Jewish kids in the school. Uh, are you able to find that track? And maybe yeah, yeah, sure. Because it's very interesting to listen actually to the language he uses. We have him here, so I can a little bit explain how the project works. So you hear his story here, and it's just uh, laid out to the places he reflects on. And so we just have to go here on the Gebele Schule, and he tells, uh, it's just one minute. Yeah, so listen very carefully the way he talks about this. I started going to school at the age of six in 1934. I attended the elementary school at Herkommerplatz in Bogenhausen. To begin with, the class was very big with over 40 pupils. In the following two years, it shrank continually. People were already saying that a lot of Jewish families lived in the Herzogpark area of Bogenhausen, wealthy Jewish families, and that they intended to leave Germany under pressure from National Socialism. The children said their parents would be leaving Germany. Our teacher said the same, but he didn't say that it was because of the Nazis that they would be going. We never talked about it. At the age of six, seven or eight, one registers these things, but one doesn't discuss them. I can't recall a single Jewish child only my friends, but they were all Aryan children. We had no idea who was Jewish and who wasn't. They simply weren't there during religious instruction. I had gone to the Catholic kindergarten near the old church in Bogenhausen, where all the children were Christian. So I didn't know any Jewish children. So what uh, the boy talks about, the man now, but then boy talks about the Jews' children, and, and what struck you in that, in, in, in his language and in the statement he just gave? Yeah, it's uh, clear that he says he can't reflect on any Jewish kid, but on the other hand, he just tells that they vanished from the classrooms. And so it's kind of this kind of splitted mem memory. And I, I, found, uh, I found that very interesting how language uh, just helps people construct their 
own kind of view. So it, I think it was hard for him to, to cope with that. And in that case, you have to say that uh, this story of him is quite interesting because this uh, boy is not from German origin. He is uh, from um, pa uh, Spanish parents and they're kind of guest workers and they have this kind of um, shop there and many of the clients are Jewish and so he always was mixed up with Jewish kids because he looked not German and so this story tends to it's very interesting to follow him uh, but how he deals in our days with this kind of story is very uh, exciting and so I, I think it would make sense to go back to uh, this girl from the beginning again because right. she has also something to say about the school. Maybe that makes sense. So, so you we're going back to B now? Yeah. Okay, we Shall go we back that? to B and then maybe... Not, yeah. not the, the story you would like with no, the worst. No, okay, <laughs> I'm not getting what I want, but, but okay. We because this one. project, you know, is open to you. You just go at home on the side if you are... Uh, interested and do it yourself so I think it's uh, I just can recommend so, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's end up with B then and then open uh, open the yeah. open the session to the floor my father and I would walk to school together first to my primary school the Gebele Schule and later to the Jewish school the latter was on his way to his chambers in Weinstraße after that, he would take me to my grammar school, the St. Anna Lyceum. There, in a class of some 40 girls, were five who were Jewish. I got on well with my non-Jewish fellow pupils, but none of them were intimate friends. During the break, when we were outside, there would be a large circle and a small circle, the latter being the Jewish girls. That seemed quite all right at the time. When, at an assembly, they all sang the Horst Wessel song, I did not join in. But since my fellow pupils knew that I was Jewish, they didn't expect me to. After an interview with me was published in the annual St. Anna Gymnasium report, one of my former classmates contacted me. She invited me and three others for lunch when I was visiting Munich. I took the opportunity to ask them how things were at school after we Jewish girls had been expelled in November 1938. How was it during the war? All the girls, they told me, had to go to the assembly hall to listen to Hitler whenever one of his speeches was broadcast. But at that school it never worked. There were funny noises and crackles and then the janitor would appear and say there was something wrong with the reception and all the girls cheered and went back to the classroom. The janitor and the director were in cahoots over this. Neither of them was a Nazi supporter. People didn't know about these subtle gestures of defiance. They assumed that everybody supported Hitler, especially in Munich, the capital of Nazism. Even now there are Jews with a German or Austrian background who will say, no, we will never go to Germany where all these things happened. To which I reply, so you're doing what Hitler wanted. He wanted you out and you are staying out. Me? I am going back. And how different things are today.
Thank you. Uh, this is with the compliments of the German tourist office, I think. Um, let's open this, uh, open this to the floor. I think there are a couple of, uh, of microphones here. Uh, yeah, we have a couple of reasons for using microphones. One, so everybody can actually hear the question. And two, because we're recording this to podcast from the website. So you often get really interesting questions and answers, but if you can't hear the question, it doesn't make any sense. So, All right, I see one here. First of all, thank you very much for this very interesting, worthwhile presentation. A lot to think about. Um, my question is, if you actually go to Munich, to any one of those sites, is there something, you're actually on the street, is there something there which will tell you you can hook up to a, a file on the internet, an audio or whatever file? Actually, uh, there are 60 signs in the city, small signs, on uh, street signs fixed, and they have this um, um, 0800 numbers, and you can listen to a trick, uh, track in uh, English or German, and you can just use your own phone. And I thought this is very important, because uh, just to reach everyone, not uh, just, just a certain uh, people who have this kind of totally modern uh, mobile uh, items. And also I didn't want to be a, sli a slave of the modern communication industries. Every half a year they do something new and then you have to uh, develop the program again. So it should be something, um, it's based on digital media, that's sure, but it's done uh, nearly analog. That was the idea. And I just look, if you go through the website, here's um, about, and then you go to press and archive, and then there's a photo um, uh, photo archive, and there you could see, if we go through, we see the, the little signs in the street. But uh, this is another story, because um, it would be helpful to have the signs on certain houses, but you might know that also from Toronto and other cities, the, uh, public space is now also economic space, and also you don't know which houses are owned by whom, by some foundations, by cooperations, and you never get these permissions to get the signs on the houses, um, maybe two or three of these houses if they are privately owned. But most of these sites, if they are former ministers and things like that, there still are kind of uh, big corporations, insurance companies, and they don't want to have these things outside. So I had to go in the parking signs or the meters. and But this is okay. I think people... Um, I don't know if they see it, but you only see anyway what you want to see because you can't... Uh, compete in the inner city with these kind of commercial, uh, visual uh, things, what happens there. You never can cope against them. I just made, just to have a quick view. Why does it, I want to have it big. Yeah, okay. Um, I just show you these big billboards I made. And the first three months in the city, it was totally, um, everything was full with posters and signposted for the project because I paid it from the artistic money uh, to get the, uh, the public, um, that they know that this will exist, you know. 
and then there's a photo of these little, it looks like that, you know? And there you have the telephone numbers. We have one here. Can you tell me, please, uh, if you would, uh, how much this prize was worth? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, how, many, how much money I had, you want to know? What? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, and I have one further quick question. I it's, it, I, I, had, um, I could use 300,000 euros, and um, uh, one third of it was just the marketing, the, the, like signposting and all these things. Uh, one third went to the, uh, all these people who did the design and whatever, and the rest went in all the um, people who helped me because I had this 12 students as a student research, research group when we um, found uh, all these archives and you have to think about it that all the origins name, mo mostly all of us it, it's oral so we had to listen it we had to write down what it's about and then afterwards to discuss do we want to have to take this, and then someone has to listen again and write it down, and then at the end I had to decide which we will record of what. And so at the end I had, if I say what we collected in six months, it was like, uh, if we say it's 100%, I only could use like 5%, because my contract with the city was to do six hours, and I could see that six hours is nothing in this history and so I did 24 hours and I think 24 hours is a good um, thing for that. So it's uh, um, two-thirds is um, 16 hours is German, eight hours is English. Just a, a quick answer, how long did the project take from beginning to end? Uh, two years. So it's maybe comparable if you do a, a big movie, because at the end when I count, I had like 120 people involved in the whole thing. And uh, you also can imagine that it was for me and the, the basic group uh, who realized it at the end, it was a very hard, also psychic time, because we had to listen to these original voices again and again and again, and then we had to write it down and then to read it again, and then the actors had to read it and we had to cut it, and so it was, um, I, I think I know every word I hear, I, I can just say by mind, so is it auswendig, is that right, by mind, yeah, by heart. <laughs> Uh, hi, quick question. Um, about the editing you mentioned, um, you said you approach this as an artist. I'm wondering when you were editing, cutting out, excluding certain pieces, did you feel a responsibility to create something complete, coherent, or what were the criteria that you used? For, for finish this? You for mean? choosing which remained and which you did not use? Oh, that was the most complicated uh, question because there were so many stories and at the end, uh, like you might know, many of you are sitting here who know these stories and it's a whole life. If I talk to this woman like uh, the daughter of this Michael Siegel, it starts with the childhood and the school and then the story of the parents and then uh, the children's transport and uh, the time in England and uh, finding the family together and then coming to Germany again when she was older and uh, other stories like people get deported and how, how 
could you bring that in that piece? That uh, because is it is it possible to take of one story of one person only that segment where they get uh, to prison or to the brought to the KZ? Is that possible uh, to take the rest out? That was really hard to decide. And at the end, I think if you go on the website, you might feel that most of the stories. That, don't have names, so it's only the names are only in the context if it's really our stories who are kind of in a sort of public. And um, because I wanted to find stories who stand for so many people who were not able to tell their stories, because in that case, I just have to remember that I only can go through stories of people who had the chance to tell it. And uh, so I took other. Uh, in the other way, like a historian would do it, so we are again with your question, I didn't give the the, the stories back to the people, so the people give a, a name like historians would do. I just took the stories and took it as an example for many others. And so it was easier to decide because I had all these places like hospitals, church, uh, schools, they had to be get some voices, you know, and then I could easier decide what I take. But it's still, it was very hard. Hi, I'm just wondering if there's a search function or how, how it is that a regular user of the site would go about looking for something specific or how you expect users to engage with the site. So that's, uh, again, with the artistic <laughs> idea, I don't want a search function because I think uh, the most uh, interesting thing for the project is that you just experience a city. And uh, for people who know Munich, they look for sites where they go, where they know people and something, and then they find out what... Uh, happened there and others that just go by accident through and so if you find something you want to m uh, know more it's easy because then you often have these kind of track lists but uh, it doesn't tell you what you will hear and that is I think very important because um, I didn't want uh, people that they go on the site and I want now to look for the gypsies or something and then the, the rest if they uh, like I experience that in Germany so often if you meet people oh we had that all at school I don't I can't hear it anymore or something that they just blend it out because it uh, names certain topics uh, and so if you go in in a site like you know like the English garden where people like to walk uh, in the afternoon or on Sundays or hang around and then they go there and they find something out I think that's more um, it's more challenging I am assuming that you had artists uh, or voice people reading all the texts, correct? And my other question is, um, Dachau is a suburb of Munich now. Are there some mentions of uh, experiences there? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I forgot to mention that the, the map also has some outskirts of the city, and there's a lot of voices uh, located in Dachau. And... Uh, can go in again, and uh, because Dachau belongs to Munich, this in that case you can't uh, see it. And let's let's see if I can manage that. So now you see everything what I have drawn, and this is Dachau here, and where this huge 
bubble is. You have like 24 or more tracks on Dachau. And uh, concerning the voices, there are all the adults are all quite famous actors from Munich, from the Kammerspiele, which I mentioned all, already. And uh, the youngest is 18, uh, a student, and the oldest was something like 40 uh, in 40 or something and the idea was to have young voices to bring this uh, story back to the to when people survived that they, they were young and when I went to the archives that was also a very interesting experience uh, when I listened to this uh, for example prisoner number one of uh, concentration camp Dachau a young student law student from Munich and he got the number one. And he was interviewed the first time for the uh, broadcasting public radio in, in Bavaria in 48 something. And then he had lots and lots and lots of interview we found in the archive. And uh, he, the older uh, the man was, he got mild. He got he did all these jobs and talking at schools and so it it went and his voice got older and so it it was kind of a story who was very very long ago I had the feeling and so I wanted to have young people to have it just now and when he talked when he was young he was so angry and when he was old he wasn't so angry anymore he had forgiven can, and can so I, that was my, yeah. my idea can I, can I maybe mm. interrupt uh, because there's of course a lot of Dachau stories also not mm. in Dachau mm. and I remember a story at the Arkistrasse where there is this office where somebody tries to get, um, I think, some help, a Dachau survivor. And I wonder if maybe it would be nice to listen. It's not that long, and it is, a, uh, it's, I think, a very uh, touching story about yeah. the return, if, if that's okay, uh, uh, to listen to that voice. If, if uh, the audience is still able... If, if you're willing to, to bear with us. It is, it, is, it is a quite, I think, uh, a story that will also, I think, in this company... Uh, maybe has some have some echoes because it is ultimately also about Holocaust education. This story, and I think that's uh, that makes it particularly relevant uh, this evening. Mm -hmm. uh, I think so too. I like to yeah. to play that and, and also uh, gets a, a glimpse that this uh, work also meant not to be just stories between 33 and 45. I also wanted to think about how memory functions and this history is not only these 12 years, it doesn't end. So it, uh, history is just what, what we make with it. It's kind of a, um, what we construct out of it. And so you, ca you could also, it, the project also reflects in many interviews the experiences of people of our days, how they look back and also these early things, how everything uh, started. So let's listen to that. It's a good example. It's, uh, today it's the, the head of the former prisoners of the uh, former concentration camp, camp this uh, man. We always tried to keep each other's spirits up. Deportation affected a whole lot of people, not just individuals. It was only after I had been tattooed that I really realized what was happening. For years I had nightmares. I kept dreaming that dogs were after me. It never actually happened to me. But when I had to work in a task force for BMW in Allach, 
there was an overseer who used to set his German shepherd onto prisoners. When the dog had sunk its teeth in, he called out, Stop! The dog obeyed instantly. That man was terrible. The nightmares troubled me for a long time. I also suffered from depression and didn't know what I could do about it. Then in the 60s, I went to a consultant psychiatrist to apply for a health damage to be recognized by the regional compensation office. He took my blood pressure and asked me the usual questions, confessional affiliation and so on. And although he had seen my resume, he diagnosed that my nightmares were a result of my low blood pressure. Outwardly calm, but boiling over inside, I said, Doctor, I think you know everything now. Yes, he said. Then I left. I never received any recognition of health damage. That was how things were. The tours and lectures at Dachau concentration camp memorial site helped me a lot. What Freud did horizontally, I do vertically. I tell stories. I tell them and I tell them and I tell them. I've been doing it for many years now. I'm off the tablets. To begin with, it was very difficult to go past the crematoria at Dachau. It wasn't possible just to shut out the associations, although my parents didn't die in Dachau. And one has to be very careful how one treats one's soul. Wow. There was one last question. Uh, you said that uh, you had 16 hours of German uh, audio and eight of English. How did you determine uh, which language to use, or are there are some tracks duplicated in both languages? The English one are just translation of German ones, uh, because I, um, the city of Munich, just wanted to have it just in German. But I thought, since we are in this kind of public place, uh, it should also be able uh, an, an access for people who don't speak German. And uh, so I said, because my contract said uh, six hours, so I said, okay, five hours German, one hour English. But at the end it was not possible in that short amount of time and I tried to do as much as possible but since every German actor um, had to speak also his part in, in English uh, I didn't want to use any native speaker because why should uh, speak a native speaker I think it's uh, important that all these people have a German accent and it was quite difficult to do that because they are actors and they want to do it good. And so it took the same amount uh, of time to produce the English as double of the German in the same time. So that's why we ended up like this. And I drove everybody mad because I wanted to do as much as possible. But you have to think it has to be translated and all this costs a lot of money. Okay, thank you very much. I think that we just uh, are, uh, have run out of time. So I think uh, thanks for coming to Canada. Thanks for sharing your project with us.
Yeah, thank you all for coming, and uh, it was great pleasure to uh, for me to come here. And I think uh, all this was what I uh, was able to experience already the last days. It was very impressive for me. Um, so. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I would like to thank both of you and also to thank Mira and Rachel, you know, for all your hard work and thank you for bringing them. And what a fascinating subject memory is. And we've occasionally at the AGO, we wonder what sorts of exhibitions we could put on. And I think memory would be a marvelous topic to really explore in such a, a layered way. In fact, it'd be wonderful for the whole city. We could have memory here. There could be memory at the ROM, memory at the Science Center, all the different aspects of it. It would be wonderful, but well, I love also, I actually love just looking the aesthetics of your site. And I love the fact it's a digital thing, but you've got this drawn map that had a certain charm. I mean, it's wonderful. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.